2007, November 1st. Today is Lecture 30, The Moon. Any questions about that before we go further? Okay. Well, today we're going to finish our discussion of the Earth and Moon system to provide us with the basis of comparison with the other planets by discussing the other half of the partners that go around space together, the Moon. The Moon is the Earth's natural satellite We've already talked about the moon in terms of its observational phenomena, the run of phases, eclipses, and so forth. But today we're going to treat the moon as a physical body. We're going to ask, how does it look like if we viewed the moon as if it was another planetary-like body? It is a planet, after all, in some sense, in that it goes around the sun, although its orbit's determined by the Earth, so we call it a natural satellite or a moon of the Earth. It's just unfortunate for our language. The moon is called the moon. The key ideas today are as follows. We want to start by looking at the surface of the moon. We want to see, we'll see that it is divided into two different terrain types, old heavily cratered highlands and the young darker maria. And then covering the entire moon is a thick layer of what's called regolith, sort of blanket rock that is pulverized rock that covers the earth to a depth of a few meters. We'll then see what we know a little bit about the interior of the moon. The various moon missions that have landed on the surface of the moon have left behind seismographs. And so we're able to learn something about the moon's interior from moonquakes. This has revealed a crust and mantle structure, but apparently no core. This is still a very controversial question, so I leave a question mark on top of that. We'll say a little bit about what that's about here in a moment. And it also has no current day magnetic field, although maybe in the distant past it did have a magnetic field. And we'll say how we know that here in the rest of the lecture. Finally, I want to round out the lecture by saying something about the origin of the moon. Where did the moon come from? Why is our moon so big compared to the size of the Earth? It's unusual for the moons in the solar system to be quite this large, at least in the inner portions of the solar system. So why is it we have such a big moon? Today's, lecture, today's topic is the moon as a celestial body in detail. We're going to see it's a good example of the other kind of terrestrial body, the terrestrial bodies that do not have atmospheres and that are small and old and cold compared to the large, warm atmosphere in shrouded Earth. Well, let's just start out with a picture to familiarize ourselves with. The moon is a very simple, solid body. It's got a solid surface. There is a near side, which is the side that's always tidally locked towards us in that one-to-one -one tidal orbit resonance. So this is the face we always see, the near side. And it consists of light terrains and dark terrains. The dark terrains are the maria. They were called maria from the Latin word for the seas because they look kind of like seas with shores. And then the lighter areas, which we now refer to as the lunar highlands. The far side of the moon was invisible until the age of space travel. The very first pictures were returned by a Soviet spacecraft, Luna 4, and now, of course, we've got these beautiful pictures here, which were returned by the Galileo spacecraft, which was sent on its way out to Jupiter, but it passed by the moon in a little gravity assist and got a very nice picture of the backside of the moon, or the so-called far side. Here we see the far side's a little bit different terrain. It's mostly consisting of cratered highlands and only a little bit of maria, which are just the extension of the maria from the near side, and this one rather large feature over here. If I take the moon and I unwrap it now to make it more convenient to look at, what we see is that the moon is primarily made up of these very, very cr heavily cratered highlands. This is now a, a computer-generated map to, to exaggerate the vertical scales a bit to really make the craters stand up. We see the dark regions of the, well, first of all, the cratered highlands are the primary form of terrain here on the moon. And you can see that the cratering is so heavy that the old craters all overlap with each other. So this is a very heavily pummeled and beaten up surface. 
The darker regions, or maria, they're much more lightly cratered. There aren't as many craters in there, a few big ones, but there aren't this sort of continuous welter of overlapping craters like we see in the highlands. And finally, there are a couple of other features that catch the eye. In particular, this particular feature here, which looks like a bullseye that someone has painted on the moon. This is an example of a very, very large impact basin on the moon, where the crust was actually punched through by the impacting asteroid, melting the middle so we get sort of this dark material here, and then ripples actually went out and then embedded themselves in the, in the moon's surface all the way out. You can see this big basin here is called the Mare Orientale, so it's actually halfway between the Mare and the Highlands because there's a large amount of dark material. You can see other large craters like this one over here, which actually does seem to have this multiple ringed appearance. These large impact basins are the signs of the really big impacts that occurred sometime during the moon's distant history. Now, the first thing that you see about this picture, the thing that really grabs you, is the cratering on the moon. If any of you have ever looked at the moon for the very first time, you look at it through a telescope, again, the first thing that grabs you is the strong cratering on the surface. This is a real distinction from what we saw on the Earth. On the Earth, all the terrains that we see around us are shaped by tectonic processes, by the process of uplift as two continents collide head-on in one of the continents, mainly the continental um, plate crumples and buckles, and you have upthrust, so you get buckling of mountains like the Appalachians, for example, are buckled up mountains produced by, by tectonic activity. The Sierras in the western United States, the Andes of Peru, the Himalayas of, of South Asia, all of those are produced by uplift. We have down-going processes like subduction, where seafloor is pushed below the crust and melted. There are new volcanoes which erupt and repave the surface of the earth. If you go around the Earth, most of the surface of the Earth is around or less than 100 million years old. There are a few old places, the middle of the so-called continental shields, like up in Canada or Greenland or down in Australia, where we find the three and a half, four billion year old rocks. But most of the Earth is fairly young and shaped by tectonic processes and then modified by weathering, by water erosion, wind erosion, and so forth. But the moon is completely different. The moon has no tectonism to speak of. Its surface has been entirely shaped by four and a half billion years of impacts on its surface. It's plowed it up and just beaten the crap out of the surface. And this is going to be a very different form of surface shaping, of surface sculpting, than we've seen here on the Earth. And so the Earth and Moon held up together represent the two extremes of, if you will, surface shaping that occurs on the solid worlds. You either have weather and tectonic processes that occur, like on the Earth, or you have surfaces which were primarily shaped and molded by impacts of rocks from space smacking their surfaces. Let's look in detail at two of these terrains, because they're actually very instructive to us, and they're going to give us some bases for, again, building up sort of the set of tools we're going to need to look at other, surf other solid surfaces in the solar system. The maria, or the seas, are the most obvious feature that you can see with your naked eye. It's the dark regions that you see when you look up at the moon. The maria cover about 16% of the surface, and they have very few impact craters. Here's a section of the maria taken from an orbiting spacecraft. I think it's actually from one of the Apollo spacecraft, the command module, during, which was circling the moon while the moon lander was on the surface. What you see in the Maria are essentially low rolling plains. There really aren't any mountains to speak of. There's a few, you know, hummocks here and there. And there's a few big craters, but they're relatively few and far in between. There are lots of little craters, 
but very few of these craters overlap. For example, you see this fairly big crater in the foreground here and some smaller craters in, inside of it that obviously were later smaller impacts behind these bigger craters. It's also notable that whenever you see big craters on the moon or other bodies, they often have lots of little smaller craters in them, as if it was the big things that hit first and then the bazillion little things that came along much later that took a lot longer to clear out of the solar system. If we look at these craters, we also see the fact that they're not the deep scoop crater. Here's a young crater in the foreground here. You can see it looks like the classic you know, cartoon crater of a scoop taken up and evacuated out of material. But the crater it's in is kind of puddled and filled in, like something has come in and flowed in and kind of filled in the crater a bit. Well, that's, that's the correct impression. That's exactly what's occurred. This is a very old crater that was filled in by a later flow of material. And that flow is, in fact, basaltic lava. Rocks that were returned from the, from the lunar maria, in fact, most of the moon landings by people were on the maria, because the terrain is low rolling and relatively flat. It's a relatively safe place to land a spacecraft. As a consequence, we've got a good idea of what the rocks look like, and they have a very high iron content. They resemble very much basaltic lavas here on the Earth. Although a big difference is that these basaltic lavas, unlike the Earth lavas, show no sign of water. Most of the lavas on the Earth are what we call hydrated. They're, they're basically formed in the presence of liquid water. On the moon, there is a notable absence of hydrated minerals, particularly hydrated basalts. Most of the rest of the terrain of the moon, however, is made up of the highlands. So that's 16% of the maria. The other 84% is made up of these heavily cratered highlands. This is lighter colored material. This is why it appears kind of white to the eye when you look up at the moon in the morning, this week. It's extremely heavily cratered, and it's been heavily cratered and modified by meteor impacts. Here now we see a lot of deep craters that are not as filled in as we saw down in the Maria, as if there weren't any later lava flows to come along and modify this terrain. Many of these craters are overlapping. You can just see it just from, that, from this picture and, of course, the picture I just showed, pretty much all the terrain relief you see here is just crater upon crater, just one after another. This surface has just been pummeled for the last four and a half billion years. This is also the only place where we find relatively high mountains and deep valleys. These high mountains and valleys are probably left over from as the moon began to cool off, the, the planet would shrink a little bit as it cooled and the crust would buckle and fold in response to that as the moon sort of shrinks out from under its crust. As a consequence, this is a very, very ancient terrain. You can just see the amount of just pummeling here. This whole section has been pulverized. So pretty clear we're looking at a fairly ancient terrain. It covers most of the moon, and it shows a very different cratering history than the Maria. And those are important clues to the history of what was going on. And in fact, cratering density is going to be part of one of the signposts we're going to use throughout the solid bodies of the solar system to guess terrain ages, especially in terrains which are not going to be reprocessed by volcanism and tectonism and weathering, but are just sitting exposed to space getting whacked by rocks. Now, most of our detailed information about the moon comes from about 380 kilograms of, moon, of rock samples that were returned through nine space missions that occurred in the late 1960s to early 1970s. There were six manned landings on the surface of the moon, the six Apollo landings, Apollo 11 through 17. Only Apollo 13 did not succeed because of the onboard explosion, and they had to return to Earth. In fact, they barely made it and never got to stay on the moon. The last, last man on the moon was in the Apollo 17 mission in 1972. 
This left, let's put 12 astronauts onto the surface of the moon, primarily visiting the Marias, although one of the missions did make it to the Descartes Highlands, and they returned probably the largest number of the moon rocks that we have today. There were also three robotic missions sent up by the Soviet Union from 1970 to 1976. These were the Luna missions. These actually used robotic scoops to grab moon rocks, put them into a return capsule, and blast that capsule back to Earth, where they were returned, into, where they basically landed in Kazakhstan and Russia. These samples have only recently become available to geologists throughout the world because they were held as Soviet state secrets until the fall of the Soviet Union in the end of the 1980s. But between these, we now have about 382 kilos of samples. They can be subject to detailed chemical analysis. They can be radioactively age-dated. And we can correlate the properties of the rocks with the terrains and places on the moons that they were taken from. So almost all we know about the moon comes from just these few handful of spots. Basically, what a human being or a robotic scoop could actually pick up. Most of these sites are concentrated in the Maria, although Apollo 16 here is one of the rare sites that actually went to a section of the highlands here, the Descartes Highlands. Part of this was a programmatic issue. It was thought that the, the, the Maria would be more interesting geologically, but also it was a safety issue. The jumbled up and difficult terrains of the highlands were less well mapped, and they were less certain on how easy it was going to be to land on the moon with a manned spacecraft. In fact, those of you who know the story of Apollo 11 will know that it was actually a very near to a crash on the original landing because they found themselves coming across a rather large boulder field. So. It's not an easy thing to get yourself onto the moon. Now, I'll just say as an aside here, um, if any of you have seen a movie called uh, In the Shadow of the Moon, if you haven't, I strongly urge you to go see this movie. It's a documentary interviewing uh, the Apollo astronauts, or at least those who agreed to be interviewed or who are still alive. And it's just a marvelous movie with a lot of footage from these moon landings. I have a personal love of this. I, I remember I was eight years old when the Apollo 11 moon landings hit. That's sort of, you know, that one, you know, where were you when memory in my life is, is uh, July, 1960, July 1969 for the first landing on the moon. This is, a, this is one of the reasons why we want to go back to the moon scientifically, why the United States is involved in this process. Japan and China are now getting in the game. China, in fact, is, is intending to send a man to the moon sometime in the near future. And one of the real scientific reasons, other than the, hey, cool, we're on the moon aspect, is because we've really only begun to just scratch the surface of the lunar geology. Written in lunar geology is a lot of the history of the early solar system, because the moon's surface, at least certainly the highlands regions, as we're going to see, are largely unmodified from the earliest epoch of the planetary formation. So there's a lot of important clues not only to the origin of the moon, but the origin of the Earth and the origin of the interplanetary system on the moon. And so it's really important for us to go back and get the rocks. You can send robots to do it, but having it, as we learned with Apollo 17 and the later Apollos, Apollo 17 had astronaut Jack Schmidt, who was a Caltech-trained geologist as an astronaut. All the other astronauts were test pilots who got minimum geology training. Robots are pretty good, but there's no substitute for the human eye saying, hey, that rock looks weird. Maybe that's the important one that actually unlocks the key to some mystery about the solar system we still haven't figured out. So it really is a good reason to go back there. Well, these are some of the moon rocks that were brought back. These are three representatives of the types of rocks that make up the lunar surface. Up in the upper left-hand corner is a basaltic rock returned from the lunar maria. Again, I said as before, it looks a lot like an earth basalt. Basalts are solidified lava that has made its way to the surface. 
All the little pockmarks you see are whatever trapped gas is in there escaping during the cooling process as it basically bubbles out of it when the pressure of being underground is let up on the surface. This is probably a fairly ancient rock, about three billion years old. The other form of rock that's the most common, in fact, the highlands are made primarily of this form of rock. This is called an anorthosite. An anorthosite is also an igneous rock like a basalt. It's solidified lava, but it's lava that's solidified underground and then been brought up. What's called an inclusive igneous rock, for those of you geology fiends, whereas a basalt is an extruded igneous rock. It's been put out on the surface. So this represents a lot of the kinds of rocks you find in the highlands, whereas the basalt here are more representative of the rocks you find in the maria. The other type of rock that's found fairly common is called a breccia. If you look at the breccia here, you'd almost claim that I, that isn't really a moon rock. I'm just faking it. I just went out and got a hunk of concrete and busted it up and stuck it on the plate. Well, in fact, a breccia is kind of a concretized rock. It is lots of little shards of various things, little bits of basalts and anorthosites stuck in a matrix of other junk. This particular type of breccia is what's known as an impact breccia. It's a rock which has been fused out of many different parts into a single rock by the energy expended during a meteoritic impact with the surface of the moon. There are lots of other ways to make breccias, but basically you take components of the breccias, they're basically jumbles of rock punched together and pressed together at high temperature, in this case by meteoritic impacts on the moon. On the earth there are lots of other processes that can make breccias. Here is a very typical lunar landscape. It's a really dark, stark, barren place. There's no water, there's no air, no life or plant life of any kind, and it's really sooty. There's just a bunch, a whole bunch of dark basaltic junk just everywhere. In fact, the astronaut suits were completely covered in fine powdery black, what seemed like ash, but in fact was just completely pulverized, flour-like consistency, or baking flour-like consistency pulverized stuff. And you see how really dark it is. The moon is a really dark place. The marvelous photographs that have recently been re released by NASA and reprocessed re 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 under modern, te modern imaging technologies are just amazing. The, the amount of photography of the moon is incredible. There's a couple of very nice, pretty picture coffee table books of these. And yeah, I'd, I would love to go there. That <laughs> would just be really cool. Now, that sort of powdery junk all over the place is a third component of the lunar surface known as regolith. Regolith comes from the Greek word rego, essentially meaning a covering, and lith, lithos, meaning a rock. So regolith is basically blanket rock. It's a sort of fine, pulverized, powdery junk that covers pretty much the entire surface of the moon. It's made up of finely ground dust and meteoritic, submeteoritic particles, and a lot of fragmented rock, a lot of those rock fragments coming from being destroyed by impacts of meteors with the moon over the repeated meteor impacts of the moon over the last four and a half billion years. In fact, not only does regolith cover the surface of the moon, most solid bodies in the solar system also have a regolith layer. The Earth has a regolith layer, although the regolith of the Earth has been strongly modified by soil processes, earthworms, life, things like that, making the soil between the bedrock and the air. So if you want to think about what regolith is generally, regolith generally is everything between the bedrock of the crust and the air, or space in the case of the moon. On the case of airless worlds, like asteroids or moons, mercury and the moon, the regolith is basically the fine covering of micrometeoritic dust and fragmented rock that's accumulated over the last few billion years. 
Now, there's a slight typo in your notes, which I corrected this morning. The depth of the lunar regolith is basically mostly made, if you scoop some of this stuff up, it's single mineral grains and rock fragments, as expected. A lot of it is going to be made up of impact breccias. Even though it looks like it's a fine powdery consistency, there's a lot of pretty hard stuff there. The actual breccias here are heat-fused grains and rocks. So this, again, it's the result of these impacts, the heat of that impact, fusing and melting the stuff into a new type of rock. The depths of the maria depend upon, the depths of the regolith depend upon where you are on the moon. In the marias, the depth is four to five meters. The, the typo in your notes was to say kilometers. Scribble out the kilometer part. Okay, four to five meters is the typical thickness of this regolith powder here on the Maria, about 10 to 15 thickness on the highlands. Now, you have to be somewhat careful. If I think, gee, there's a fine, powdery, flower-like consistency stuff to the depth of four meters, how come when the astronauts stepped off the spacecraft, they didn't go <laughs> right down into the stuff? And the answer is because it's all settled down and, and pretty well compacted. It's only the very top couple of centimeters that's still kind of loose and crumbly. In fact, the stuff is so hard hard that even though you're you know, relatively soft, made up of like standing on sort of sand or broken up rock, they had to use hammers to drive down core drills. It was not easy to get through the regolith. So this idea that the moon must be young because the regolith is so thin, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Basically, it shows a tremendous ignorance of basic geology and physics. Let's look in more detail at some of these, some of these regions and especially pay attention a little bit to what we can learn about the ages of these terrains. Let's take the Maria again. The Maria cover, as I said before, about 16% of the Earth's surface, or the Moon's surface. Here's outlined in red the main Maria of the lunar near side. These are the youngest of the lunar terrains. They consist primarily of dark basalts, these dark lava rocks, which are very rich in iron and magnesium, the type of metals that are usually brought up in magmas. However, these things are very different from the kind of lava rock that you or I could go out and collect on Earth in a place like Hawaii or the western U.S. and the volcano fields of California in that they simply lack hydrated minerals. These are lavas that solidified in the absence of water. So there's no hydrated minerals whatsoever and no water content in these things at all. It's extremely different. So if you were to be given a blind sample of moon, a moon basalt and earth basalt, you could tell the difference right away just by asking the degree of hydration. The other thing that will bring your to attention if you do a more detailed chemical assay is that the moon basalts are extremely titanium rich. They have 10 times more titanium on average than a typical moon or earth rock. So if we could figure out a way to actually mine moon rocks someday in the distant future, the moon will be a wonderful source of titanium, which is a very important metal for a lot of technological applications. Now, what we're seeing here on the Maria, why they're such smooth plains, why they're so lightly cratered, and why some of those big craters look filled in, is because the Marias are the leftovers of very, very large ancient lava flows. But these lava flows are not caused by volcanism of magma welling up through cracks in the middle and making little volcanoes in place like they are on Earth, this is due to very, very large impacts. Impacts so large we're talking about asteroid-sized bodies smacking the moon, melting the undercrust, actually busting through to the molten underlayers in the young moon, and then that material flooding out and filling the plains and just paving over all the craters. So here's an example of a repaving process, a geologic process that can erase older rock and replace it with newer rock on a geologic timescale. When we radioactive age date the various rocks that were brought back from the, from the Mari of the moon, 
we get ages between 3.1 and 3.8 billion years ago. This is fairly young compared to the 4.5 billion years we know for the age of the solar system. So what we're seeing here is the remnants of the very last part of a section of a epoch in the formation of the solar system called the epoch of heavy bombardment. This is when all some of the leftover materials out of which the planets were formed were getting swept up in the last phases of kind of the cleanup from building the planets in the solar system. There was a lot of rock running around. The rock ranged in size from sort of fist-sized things up to kind of asteroid-sized things. A lot of these rocks got swept up by being sucked up by the planets as impacts. And so all the planets were just getting pummeled over and over and over again with meteor after meteor during the first billion years or so of the solar system's history, between 3.8 and 3.1 billion years ago. By the end of that period, most of the rock had been cleaned up, and so you don't get much anymore. And so this is somewhat consistent with the fact that the maria being a younger terrain is also consistent with the cratering rate. The amount of cratering that you see on a surface, the crater density, is a signpost of a terrain's age on a body like the moon that doesn't have air. So we can look at the cratering density to guess age. Here there's very few craters, and the radioactive age dating evidence shows us that not only are there few craters, but the terrain is very young. So here's a, here's a good look at the Maria, the typical view of the Maria. It's fairly smooth. It's very, very dark. This is from Apollo 17 in the Taurus-Littrow Valley. Very slow rolling hills, low rolling plains. A few exposed bits of bedrock, but that's only where they're at the edges of craters and got sort of pushed up above the surrounding lava flows that you see here, covered by that thin layer of you know, four or five meters of regolith. The cratered highlands, on the other hand, are the oldest of the moon terrains. So I've outlined in red one particular zone of highlands. In fact, this portion here, the Descartes highlands, is the only place where we've actually returned rock samples from. This is primarily going to be, the terrain here is primarily shaped not by lava flows from late impacts like in the Maria. The terrain here was shaped by meteoritic impacts. Basically, the thing has gotten pulverized repeatedly during the heaviest portion of the heavy bombardment. But that pulverization never punched through the crust and resulted in the lava flows that gave us the Maria. Those were only the very rare heavy impacts that made the Maria. If we age date the rocks that we brought back from the highlands, we get much older rock. The youngest highland rocks are older than the oldest Maria rocks, all the way up to a little over 4 billion years old. And in fact, there are some rocks isolated minerals that get as old as about 4.2 billion years old. What you're seeing here is the remnants of terrains which were formed during the last, the biggest portion of the epoch of heavy bombardment. Most of the moon would look like the highlands were it not for a few late gigantic impacts that were able to punch through the crust and allow this later repaving process. The other thing that makes the, the highlands stand out is the unusual mineral content. None of the rocks are older than about 4.35 billion years old, and the mineral content is really weird. In fact, the mineral content suggests that 4.35 billion years ago, the moon was entirely one gigantic ocean of molten lava. So that was the starting point, and that's kind of surprising because that's 200 million years after the formation of the Earth. The moon was still molten. It's a small body. It should have cooled off really fast, and apparently it didn't, or maybe something else is going on. Maybe this is telling us we're not that sure about our old idea about the formation of the moon, as we'll see here in just a moment.
So, the cratered highlands are very heavily cratered, very old terrains. The maria are very lightly cratered, relative, relatively young terrains. Cratering density turns out to be our way of telling dates. The way I like to think about cratering density is imagine you're driving down the road and bugs start hitting your windshield. Okay? As you drive along, you collect more bugs. Eventually, you can tell, have I been driving a long time or a short time by how many bugs have accumulated on my windshield? Furthermore, I can always go out and I can erase the process. I can stop at a filling station and clean off the bugs and start over again. And if I'm lazy, I'll just clean off the bugs in front of the driver's side window because I'm the only person in the car. Then I'll have relatively fresh repaved windshield and then the bugs will continue to accumulate on the other side. And if I look at the car later, I can say, yeah, that section of the windshield was cleaned more recently than the rest of it because there are fewer bugs there than over here. Okay, fine, bugs are kind of gross, but use rocks hitting the surface of the moon or an asteroid, they leave a crater behind. As time goes on, if nothing comes by to repave that surface, you accumulate more craters. Once you repave the surface, you erase most of the old craters, and so you have to start over again accumulating craters. But kind of to continue with the bug analogy, imagine that the bugs only live in a certain spot, and after you travel out of the bug zone, you stop accumulating craters. In the solar system, it's the same way. Most of the impacts were concentrated in the first billion years of the solar system's history because it's clearing up the, the debris. Meteors still hit planetary surfaces to this day, but it's much more rare. You've moved out of the time when there's lots of stuff to impact surfaces. So here's a picture just to continue the thought here of, this is the Descartes Highlands, much lighter material than we saw in the Maria. And now you can see it's much more rolling hills and tons of rock and pulverized rock everywhere. All right, let's go into the interior of the moon for a second. What's going on inside the moon? If we could slice the moon apart, or in this case we actually can use seismograph stations left on the surface of the moon by the Apollo spacecraft. Those seismograph stations were equipped with radio transmitters, so we could for many, many years follow seismic reports coming back from those, from those stations. There were also a number of robotic landers which were sent, the rangers and pioneers, which were sent out before the moon landings to survey the surface of the moon. Many of those also carried very simple seismographs. Over time, we've been able to build together a seismic record of the moon. Not as good as the one on the Earth because we haven't been able to cover the moon completely. It's kind of hard to put a seismograph on the back side of the moon because the far side is not visible and radio waves can't transmit through the moon. And we don't have communication satellites around the moon to collect that data. One of the future plans of moon exploration is to, to actually put detailed seismic stations all over the moon and actually use communication satellites to be able to have the far side ones transmit to Earth. Okay, it's a bit of an aside, but if you put that information together, what little information we have now is based on occasional cracking and moon quakes which occur deep inside the solid mantle where the mantle begins to actually buckle. Remember the moon is stretched by the tides from the earth and every now and then strain builds up and is relieved but those earthquakes appear to come from deep in the interior of the moon not near the surface crust like earthquakes on the earth. So these moon quakes seem to come from a solid mantle which is about 90% of the volume of the moon. In fact, the moon appears to be completely solidified all the way down. There are no liquid portions of the moon in the present day. The moon is cooled off, solidified, and is now old and cold. The surface crust is anywhere from 10 to 100 kilometers thick. The thickest portions of the crust are in the highlands. The thinnest portions, of course, are on the maria, where the crust was punched through and repaved. 
And there may, in fact, be an iron core, but there's a question mark because we really haven't found the evidence of an iron core. If it's there, it's got to be really small. Now, what's the reason why we think there isn't an iron core? Well, the strongest reason turns out to be because the moon has no global magnetic field. The Earth has a global magnetic field, and as we saw earlier this week, that magnetic field is due to currents in the liquid metallic outer core of the Earth. But the moon doesn't seem to have a molten core, therefore there's no lunar dynamo like there's the geodynamo, and therefore no current external magnetic field. But the question we can ask is, okay, so it doesn't have a, a liquid core now, did it have one in the distant past? At some time in the past, was there a liquid core and would there have been convective motions to have made a little dynamo to make a magnetic field? And the answer to that seems to be a qualified yes. If we look at some of the rocks, some of the very old moon rocks, when you take a rock that's molten and you solidify it in the presence of a magnetic field, you freeze in a little bit of magnetic field along with that solidification process. This produces a fossil magnetic field inside that rock and makes the rock a little bit magnetic. So what the magnetism in the rock, when I pick it up, is remembering it's having captured a bit of that ancient global magnetism of the moon. And so we refer to this as fossil magnetism. Whenever a rock cools in the presence of a strong magnetic field, it always freezes in a bit of the field in which it was formed. When the global field is vanished, that frozen in bit of field still remains in the rock as a fossil. And so we, we brought back old rocks from the moon, we've analyzed them in the lab, and they have more magnetism in them than if they had formed in the present day moon, which has no magnetic field. So what the conclusion of this is, is that while the moon does not have a magnetic field today, based on the ages of the rocks that do show a frozen in magnetic field, somewhere between 3.6 and 3.8 billion years ago, the moon was not old and cold like it is today. The moon was, in fact, relatively young, hot, and molten in the interior, and it appears to have had a magnetic field. It just doesn't have one anymore. Now, that it had a magnetic field may or may not be proof that it has a solidified iron core deep in the center. If it does have one, it's a much smaller core than we see in other planets. Just to throw one number out, in a typical planet like the Earth or Venus or Mars, the core, can, the core occupies about 50% of the radius in round numbers. The core of the moon, if it exists at all, can occupy no more than 25% of the radius. So it's already unusually small compared to all the other planets around the solar system and smaller bodies. It's not a resolved question. It's one of the reasons we want to go back to the moon, to really get a full seismic assay of the interior of the moon and really answer this question once and for all. So the final question I want to pick up today <clears throat> is where did the moon come from? Did the moon form with the Earth or is there something else going on? If I want to understand moon formation, I have to pose this question in scientifically addressable terms. Any origin of the theory that wants to, any picture I want to come up with that says this is how the moon formed has to answer four basic questions. The first of these is that the moon rocks we brought back from the surface show a lot less iron content than comparable earth rocks. Say, so there just simply isn't as much iron in proportion to silicon on the moon as we see on the earth. The second fact you have to explain is that there is simply no water or other volatiles 
frozen carbon dioxide, frozen ices or gases of any kind on the moon. The moon is completely bone dry and devoid of volatiles, even in the interior. The rocks show signs of having formed in the complete absence of water. Now, nowadays it would have dried out, but three, four billion years ago, we would not have expected that for an object the size of the moon, and yet that's what we find. The third fact is that the moon rocks that we bring back don't look like earth crustal rocks in detail. They actually look more like earth mantle rocks, things that are tossed up by deep upwellings in the mantle producing volcanism, not the typical kinds of surface stuff we see on the Earth. What's going on with that? Why does it look like the Earth's mantle, not the Earth's crust? And finally, if I look in detail at the chemical properties of the Earth, I find a very interesting fact. The relative proportions of the different isotopes of oxygen are frozen in the rocks are the same as the Earth. This is not expected because if I consider that the moon was built out of meteorites, the moon should have oxygen ratios more like meteorites because it would have been relatively unprocessed, unlike the Earth, which has been through a lot of tectonic processing. So meteorites have very, very different oxygen isotopes than the moon. So very mysterious. It looks like the moon was almost, but not quite, taken of the same exact material as the Earth. So how do I explain these four facts? Well, there's four ways that people have, be, have proposed to explain the formation of the moon. All of these are different, but they're all testable propositions with observations I can make, either from moon rocks I brought back or future studies of the moon directly. The first of these is the simplest, co-formation. The Earth and moon simply formed together in place by the same processes that occurred some four and a half billion years ago. This is okay, we expect this sort of thing to happen, but it can't explain why, if it formed in the same place out of the same materials, there is such a dramatic difference in the iron content and there are no volatiles. If you formed out of the same stuff, you should have the same stuff in the same proportions. It just doesn't work. So co-formation, which seems to be the most obvious, doesn't actually hold up the facts. It, it can't explain what we observe. The other possibility is that the moon was formed somewhere else, but through the complex gravitational dance that went on in the early solar system, the moon was captured gravitationally by the Earth and locked into its current orbit, which was slowly circularized over time by tides. Okay, well that could work, but it still doesn't explain the lack of iron and volatiles, because iron and volatiles are found everywhere else in the solar system. And it doesn't explain the identical oxygen ratios. I would expect to find oxygen ratios similar to other bodies, not identical to the Earth. It's almost like finding, you know, sort of a blood type or genes shared with someone that came from another country. It doesn't make sense, not obviously. Also, it turns out doing this gravitational capture trick is really hard. It's really hard to gravitationally capture another body. And it's most like, more likely not to happen. It's more likely it'll just have a close encounter than a capture encounter. Now, that's not a theory killer, but it just says that it's not a very likely process. So capture really doesn't work. It doesn't explain a lot of the properties. Fission. This sort of genetic relationship in the isotope, oxygen isotope ratio suggests that the Earth and Moon may have been once formed together, but the early Earth was spinning so fast that it was spinning near breakup, like a water balloon spun too fast and all of a sudden breaks off a bit. That was what some people think might have happened to the Earth. A fast-spinning proto-Earth just ripped off a chunk of it and that chunk carried away some of the angular momentum. The Earth slowed down as a proto-Earth slowed down, and this chunk went into orbit as the proto-Moon. 
That explains all the composition issues, except for the lack of volatiles. Because if you tore a chunk out of one part of the Earth or another, like tore a chunk out of the Pacific Basin, it still better have the same mix of water and hydrated minerals that you see on the Earth, and you don't see it at all. Also, this is really hard to do. If you think gravitational capture is hard, you ought to try spinning something up until it breaks. The Earth would be rotating a whole lot faster than it does today, and it just doesn't make sense. And then we can get crazy. Let's take a gigantic impact. The proto-Earth gets hit by kind of a Mars-sized chunk of rock and gets smacked so hard off-center that it just knocks a gigantic chunk out of the Earth, mixes up with the Mars stuff, the heavy Mars stuff and the Earth stuff, the iron, sinks back into the Earth and sinks into the Earth's core. And then the mantle that got ripped off the Earth and the Mars-like uh, chunks got left together to fall together in their own gravity to form the moon. The process was so violent and hot that it blew off all the volatiles. Well, you know, the problem is I just answered all four questions with that crazy idea. In fact, a giant moon-whack impact could probably actually do the job. Unfortunately, that movie doesn't work. So it turns out that the impact theory, while it sounds the craziest, is actually the one most likely to be correct. Not 100% yet. There's a lot more work to be doing. It still has problems, but it has some strong parts. The impactor's iron would have sunk into the Earth and not left any iron behind in the moon. That's why the moon is so iron poor. The post-molten moon impact would have boiled off all its volatiles. All the water and gases would have just went poof, flashed out into space, leaving behind a bone-dry hunk of rock. But part of the material that went into the proto-moon after the impact is earth mantle material, which is the one type of local rock that the moon most, most resembles. So you get the similar compositions, the identical oxygen ratios. Of course, it was torn out of the earth but torn out of the Earth so violently it tore out, boiled off all the volatiles. It sounds crazy, but it seems to work. And in fact, we're going to be watching out throughout our visit through the solar system, looking for giant impacts as one of the factors in the formation of planetary bodies. It's not a completely crazy idea. In fact, giant impacts may be one of the key mechanisms by which some of the evolution of the solar system, and not just the moon, occurred. And we'll pick that question up when we start on the solar system on Monday.